Leadership Letters, the podcast reflecting and discussing all things leadership. Coming up in episode five. The majority of chief executives in the UK are women who feel like they don't look and sound like a chief executive, but actually they look and sound like a lot of the other chief executives. You are powerful and your actions are powerful and it's okay to be powerful. How you're perceived by people around you and how much they want you to succeed or not, it has a direct impact on how good you are at your job. Leadership is a behavior, not a title. Welcome to Leadership Letters. I'm Lizzie Bentley Bowers, and you're joining us on a podcast that's a place for leaders to find some inspiration, some thoughts, some ideas to bring to your own leadership challenges. We've got a brand new leadership letter to hear later, a jumping off point to think about and reflect on all things leadership. And before the end of the podcast, please do stay with us for the latest leadership letters lowdown. So let's get on and introduce our latest guest on leadership letters and dive into some leadership talk. She's been a CEO for almost 10 years and as volunteering has played a huge role in her life and career, this has seen her go on to lead organisations working with both young people and single parents. She's now the chief executive of a Soho private members club, maybe not quite what you think though. House of St Barnabas is a social enterprise members club and employment academy set up to break the cycle of homelessness and doing some really extraordinary work. I'm delighted to welcome Rosie Ferguson to Leadership Letters. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. What are your earliest memories of leadership? The first time you kind of really were aware that leadership was a thing and how does it still influence you? As someone who was kind of proactive from quite a young age in terms of my leadership, uh, I would say maybe commands rather than abilities at that at that stage. But I think my first experience of leadership uh, was from robbing up from two types of people in authority. One who I was a kind of a confident, charismatic, sounds like the wrong word for a child, but I, I was driven and I was excited and I had energy and I had passions at quite a young age. And there were definitely two types of adults around me, those who thought I was disruptive and wanted to put me back in a box, uh, which I'm pleased to say were in the minority, actually, and yeah. those who wanted to give me opportunities to uh, kind of shape the box, uh, dance on the box, you know, take responsibility. And, and I, I definitely continue to, to see people, uh, leaders kind of fitting into those two categories and try hard. And I think that resonates all the way through from primary school when I wanted to change the school uniform and do various things through to when I was in my early years of chief execs and, and was a young chief exec and trying to reach out to other people in the sector. Um, there were some people who absolutely want to reach their hands out and lift you up and there are others who are more defensive of their own position if you like so I think I've certainly been aware of that for a long time and I'm really keen to make sure that I always that I'm always um, the empowering kind of leader although none of us are perfect and I love the analogy of getting people to dance on the box (laughs) right so how how does that show up then in your leadership what are the things that you say and do that encourage people and empower people to to do that I'm chair of Akivo the association of chief execs of uh, charities and I think for me the part of the motivation of doing that is around how do we really 
create a culture where leadership comes in all different shapes and sizes and everyone feels they have support and permission to lead in civil society. So I suppose at a kind of strategic level, how do we make sure that Akivo provides the encouragement and nurture and platform for leaders to, of, all, of all kind of backgrounds to be the best they can be? In the day to day, I um, I hope that people experience me as that kind of as that kind of leader. As ever, with power comes the responsibility to make sure that you are doing that. I'm I'm particularly excited by teams and how teams can work together to do that for each other and kind of acknowledge and thrive on each other's strengths and weaknesses and really build um, senior teams but also teams at all levels in the organization how you really enable one another to be the best you can be without a kind of sense of competition or, or defensiveness. Rosie I love what you said about um, leadership coming in at all different shapes and sizes I really kind of want that to be what this podcast is about really I think it's easy to think that someone like me has a view on what leadership is and everyone needs to be a certain do certain things and say certain things and be certain ways to be leaders. And I'm far more of the view that there are some really useful principles and ideas and leadership is an individual thing too. It has to be. And I love what you said about creating the support and permission to lead so that leadership is something that everybody sees is for them. I mean, I think there is, or there certainly can be a kind of traditional expectation of leadership where people where leadership comes from the top and certainly some of the the greatest organization and cultural change that I've seen and service innovation and has has not come necessarily from the top but it's come from people at all different levels in an organization with the support and permission to do it and I think um it's making me think now as I say this how well am I doing this in my current organization it's kind of because I think especially in the context of the pandemic that we've been in in the last year there has been less opportunity in some way I mean more in other ways but actually the focus with staff has been so much on well-being and Mm. making sure everybody's okay and can work and doesn't need to work when they don't need to work that somehow people have been challenged on the day-to-day and on the context that they're working in that makes me question have we actually lost some of the more developmental conversations that we might I only I started my current role six months before the pandemic hit so I've had a very particular so as I'm talking I'm kind of reflecting on actually as I talk about this is this leadership style true for me now Um, and I hope it is but I certainly think that that some of the impact of the last year has meant that certainly for example some things have been some kind of workshops and uh, work on culture have been deprioritized initially in a oh we'll do this when we get back face to face but actually that that extension of, has gone on for a year, hasn't it? So I think making sure right now that we continue to prioritise those kind of um, cultural and development things, uh, despite the fact that it, it feels a little bit counterintuitive to be to be um, doing them. Like you say, the, it's not just the extension, but the number of extensions. I think that's been very challenging. I think for a lot of leaders, there's been so much intention that has had to shift yeah. again and again and again. So hearing that it's been more challenging in a virtual world, what are the things that you know from previous experience you can say and do that will bring that back? I think investment is a huge one. But in my experience, actually, that's not about training courses. It's about mentoring and shadowing and trying to give people opportunities to get out of your organisation and be inspired by people in different contexts. I think actually building kind of cross 
organizational working groups can be really powerful in terms of giving people giving a mandate to a group of staff and, and giving them the space to lead on it and also just encouraging and recognizing and rewarding people who do have that that natural instinct to kind of come forward and celebrate that and I think being able to give opportunities for progression it's not always easy in small organizations but I think um, when people can see that people can move internally in an organization even if that's not right for them it gives a sense that actually there's growth you know it's an organization of growth and I think that's a really important albeit much harder when organizations are contracting rather than rather than growing and when you see people using those opportunities so when you describe those offers what kinds of permissions do people need to give themselves to do that or what permission did you give yourself to do that you are powerful and your actions are powerful and that's and it's okay to be powerful I think a lot of people um can be told in their early years that they that they shouldn't that they're not powerful and they shouldn't be powerful and that they're not entitled or for whatever for a variety of complex reasons um people can grow up thinking that they don't deserve or they're not the person who is supposed to be leading and I think the idea that anybody can be powerful and power comes from from within and also isn't about taking control and making the world worse for other people. Someone, um, a colleague of mine recently posted a thing about should chief executives have different role titles now because leadership's moved on. And there is something about the responsibility that comes with a title that shouldn't be diluted, but actually that also comes with the responsibility to nurture and grow and to kind of create. Who or how or where or when did you, did you notice shifts in those permissions that you gave yourself? Has it always been there? You you, you talked about the different types of teachers at the beginning. And yeah. Have there been other moments when there have been leaders that have created those conditions for you? And if so, how have they done it? I didn't need permission from myself, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. And I think some people um, still at quite, you know, quite late stages in their career um, can still think, is it my place to do that? And I, I hear that quite a lot. And actually, I... I never really had any concern about whether anything was my place, but I think there was certainly a difference between people who, who then said, um, who agreed with me and who gave, and actually then gave responsibility in a structured way. Um, You know, initially, whether that's being involved in a, in a student council or in a, um, you know, getting involved in volunteering locally or whatever that is, having, having the opportunities to, to demonstrate and take responsibility and then being given a bit more responsibility and a bit, and a bit more responsibility. I think, I suppose where that became more stretching for me was when I then was into more formal chief executive director, you know, when you when you get the titles that go along with it, and that's the point at which you start to think, am I really the person who should be doing this? Am I, is this, am I able to, what do I need to look like and be like and sound like in order to fulfill that? And I think, I think a lot of people have that transitioning into leadership, but I think that is shifting, you know, it's interesting at Kivo, I was speaking to someone the other day who's a new female chief exec of a charity saying, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that I don't um, look and feel and talk like a chief executive charity. Actually, the majority of chief executives in the UK are women who feel like they don't look and sound like a chief executive, but actually they look and sound like a lot of the other chief executives. So actually, I think that narrative is shifting that actually the majority of leaders or at least, you know, there are a lot of leaders out there who are who aren't the traditional model of what of what leadership has been what was your answer then and what would your answer be now to that question 
as I step up to CEO, what do I need now? At the time, I thought I needed to wear a suit, which is <laughs> awful. So I think I went out and bought loads of like um, suits and court shoes because that was kind of, and then uh, and now I just wear like sparkly tops. Uh, you know, it's kind of, um, so I think there was certainly a sense that you should conform. And that, I think that was convincing myself as much as convincing anybody else. But, um, but certainly with confidence and experience comes the knowledge that actually uh, what you're wearing, although maybe what I'm wearing did matter then, because at that point I didn't have a track record. Maybe actually if I'd walked in the room in trainers and a, sparkly t-shirt people might have thought who whereas now I've got the the track record behind me and the credentials that actually um so there is also something about um yeah it seems ridiculous to have done that but I can see why that was also part of the journey yeah uh, yeah I, I, I love that I love that acknowledgement that actually that's what I did need to do then if it works for you I could have probably worn slightly less horrible suit <laughs> but, um, but yeah so if it helped yeah. you to get the nice suit or whatever it is, your equivalent of that is, if it helps you to step into that role and transition, great. If you're doing it because you think there's something else going on that's unhelpful to you, maybe not, maybe question that. As we've talked about, we can lead from any age and from any place in an organization. And there are those very clear step up moments as well. We all, we all know and recognize them. So what, what were the most useful or not things that you, either did or heard in that moment at that time? I mean, I think the most valuable thing is the confidence of people around you in you. And actually, if you've been, well, I mean, if we're talking about kind of step up in terms of formal roles, people will have been selected or chosen or, and I think having confidence in, in that. I was an internal candidate in my first chief exec role and I've been in the organization for a long time and I took for granted at the time the credibility that that gave me and the fact that I was really expert in youth work I was I knew the organization in South and I had the trust of the staff and the trustees the young people we served and the organizations in our membership so I really had that I was, I was really lifted up on a wave of confidence and trust which at the time because I was had a bit more I wouldn't say I was racked with self-doubt but I was slight I, it, it felt like more of a big deal to me yeah. um that I really kind of that wave really took me forward and really helped me succeed because when everyone around you wants you to succeed you're more likely to succeed I would say my next chief exec role I, I went into it with more I've nailed this once I can do this again and actually it was a very different context I wasn't expert um, the organization wasn't as trusting I wasn't such a clear cultural fit in terms of my personality and my background. And so I think that was a bit of a shock to suddenly be in a context where, oh, wait a second, I could thrive in that context, but actually this is going to be a lot harder. And, and actually that how you're perceived by people around you and how much they want you to succeed or not can, has a direct impact on how good you are at your job, which is, which is obvious but useful. Absolutely. You say obvious and, you, and you're right. It, it is obvious, but sometimes it's the most obvious things that are the ones that we miss. Yeah. But not least, I love that you said, you know, the, the most valuable things, the confidence of the people around you, in you. And quite often when someone goes into a new role, the, the first thing they let go of is the fact that they were given the job. Yeah. <laughs> I love what you said, lifted on, lifted on a wave of confidence and trust. And when you're not feeling that, though, where do you look to to get it? 
Well, I think there has to be confidence and trust in yourself primarily, and then a whole network of wise people who you could go to. I mean, I'm part of an action learning set. I have a another uh, community of people from different sectors who I met on the Windsor Leadership Trust program. I have a number of groups of people who I can go to. I've had a coach kind of on and off for several periods. So I do think actually having that space to go where you can actually be like, I have no idea what I'm doing or I'm completely out of my depth or I've done something and I'm really not, you know, having that space where with people who you really trust who don't actually have a vested interest in the organisation or or even you that much beyond that individual, that's very specific context. And I think for me, that that's really valuable. Such good advice. And you've referred to it in a different way as well in, in terms of looking outside the organisation. But it's such good advice when, especially when we're so busy and so absorbed in the organisation that we're in, to lift our heads up and seek the support, the yeah. feedback, whatever it is from outside. There's also something about... Um, one of your the questions you asked previously was around what influence you know who influences your leadership and I was thinking about who are my kind of leadership role models and actually it's the people I've previously worked with who know me really well so my teams at London Youth and at Gingerbread and at the house but it's those people who who you've worked with who know you who you've learned I've learned so much from people who I've managed uh, particularly being in a senior role quite young I've really I've had you know I've brought momentum and perspective and lots of valuable skills but I've benefited so much from the experience and wisdom and insight of other people and I think everybody who you work with closely you then carry a little bit of them inside of you so I'll kind of quite often what would so-and-so do in this situation I need to channel a bit of of so-and-so now and also um in the last week I've spoken to at least three people who you know and had that kind of conversation with them who I previously worked with so I think that's a real because it is people who know you and they know your strengths and weaknesses and they know um how you lead and they can both support and challenge you um in the way you move forward if we can move on to your letter Rosie I'd love to hear who have you chosen to write to and why and then please do share your letter with us I have decided to write to future civil society leaders. I find it quite intimidating. Who do I want to write to? And I was trying to think about names, people, but my instinct was actually, I want to write to the future. Lovely. Dear future civil society leaders, circa 2041. Firstly, congratulations on being in the future. As I write, our context is changing in significant ways, like tectonic plates shifting underneath us. How we interact with one another, who has power and how different voices are heard, how we shop, what drives our economy and how technology will advance how we communicate and deliver services. I have a million questions to ask you. If only you could reply and tell us how better to prepare for the world that lies ahead. Our job as civil society leaders in 2021, apart from surviving a pandemic, is to try to create the best world we can for you. Whilst we are trying to process our immediate challenges, we must also hold ourselves to account on ensuring you live in a world which is socially and economically fairer and geographically more stable. We are doing our best, but I fear time will tell us we are flawed and our best was not good enough. You, the civil society leaders of 2041, are likely to be children and teenagers as I write this. You will have lived the impact of COVID on your education, your social development, your employment opportunities and your mental health. I'm so sorry you have had to absorb such a huge impact of the pandemic. 
though I have no doubt that you will emerge from COVID with a hunger to take on the world. And I'm excited to see how you do that. I think my generation, leaders in our 30s and 40s, are at a transition point between traditional structures of leadership characterized by white male hierarchy, institutions and competition, and a more contemporary leadership model, which is more diverse, female, collaborative, and I hope more successful at building movements for social change, rather than investing energy in institutional rivalry. I am excited that I will grow old in a world which is led by you, with all your inevitable passion and resilience. I've no doubt you will look back at 2021 and see the mistakes that we made, but for what it is worth, here is my advice to you. Leadership is a behavior, not a title. Yes, titles can increase our power, but first seek to take responsibility for the things you want to change. Inspire and respect others to join you and be open to continuous learning. If you do this, then you are already a leader and formal power will follow if you want it. Learn from our mistakes and let go of the systems, structures and grudges of previous eras that no longer serve you. But hold on tightly to the values, principles and histories that inspire you. If you are pushing at an open door, walk through it with pride, but be grateful for all those who have torn down the fortress in front of it so that you can walk through. And celebrate small progress. Real social change happens over decades through multiple forces, institutions and individuals, and sometimes it goes backwards for a while. See yourself within that context, but celebrate the small wins when you have them. It reassures me to know that just as many of us feel weary from the relentless impact of COVID-19, there is a new generation of leaders sitting in your bedrooms and planning to change the world. I know you are out there. I'm sorry for the unhelpful legacies we have created, and I'm proud of the positive platforms we've built. You won't be perfect either, and that will be okay. With love and optimism, Rosie. Wow, Rosie. Oh, I love that. I love so much about that letter. That's wonderful. So many questions. And so let's start with this one, because you said I have a million questions to ask you, the leaders in 2041, and you only had one question. What would you ask them? I think it's what would be the one thing that would make the biggest difference, because I think there are sometimes it's so we live in such a noisy world and um, there are so many things that we're trying to drive forward. And actually, and I, I, I suspect the answer would be climate change, but I, I'm not sure if that certainly if we were looking back 20 years and, and we were I would say, I mean, the two things I mentioned in there around equality, fairness and climate change feel to me like the two things that are urgent if we want our planet to to continue uh, both in reality from climate change but also not just increasingly perpetuating the the inequality that that is growing certainly in the UK. You said our job is to create the best world we can for you to do the job that you need to do including putting right the mistakes we made. I I love the circularity of of what you said. What are the mistakes we're making that you would like to see us learning from more quickly? And what do you, yeah, what would you love to see perhaps yourself as well as others doing about that? I mean, I think we are still, uh, and I don't necessarily have an answer for this, but I think institutions limit us. Um, 
I can see that institutions deliver purpose and progress and structure and governance and compliance and insurance and all of these things that I know are really important and I would not want to operate without. I'm not saying everything's red tape, like, but actually the, the fact that people who are in leadership positions are primarily held to account on governance, compliance and turnover uh, regardless of whether that's in the private sector or the charity sector, that actually the, they're the things that we're most often asked about and how do we shift that? And I think actually if the conversation was more about what imp- impact cannot be, yes, services can be delivered by one organisation and they can deliver that well, but actually actual change cannot be delivered by one person or organisation and, and real change over time. If you think about feminism as an example, that is decades of different kinds of organizations and and people and progress and thought and art and culture and if we can think more in that kind of holistic sense about who we work with and how we collaborate and um you know what what we do together I think there's so much potential in that but actually so much of our time gets taken up by running institutions and what are the conversations we choose who do we choose to have them with the staff you know when there's so much that needs to be done how are we taking responsibility to make the space for the conversations that will lessen the number of mistakes that our successors have to put yeah, back? Exactly. <laughs> and then the celebrating the progress in that. You talked about celebrate the small progresses and that progress sometimes looks a lot like going backwards. Yeah. And how does that attitude to progress serve you well as a leader and how does it show up? I certainly think having ambitious goals and deliverable plans is a really important combination because actually ambitious plans don't necessarily come to fruition but actually achievable plans that move you towards ambitious goals certainly I think helps getting that balance between um, you know strategy and what is possible particularly at the moment and um, I was speaking of something the other day about the idea actually at the moment a compass is more useful than a strategy I think gone are the days when but I think it's still in the kind of leadership narrative the idea that you're supposed to have a five-year business plan which details out all of your five-year growth plans and all of that and actually particularly right now but actually I don't feel at any time in my career has the landscape stood still enough that anything that you wrote in year one would still be relevant in year five and so but actually but the the risk if you don't have that kind of rigor is that people are just kind of jumping from one random opportunity to another without any without any sense of stability or purpose. So I think that idea of a compass being really clear that you're going uh, north northeast and that that's where you're trying to get to, but actually you might take different roads and paths to get there, and there might be a, things in the way that you weren't expecting, and but actually you know where you're going is is I find a much more useful way of thinking about it than having a business plan as such. And having had to run a business, the CEO of House of St Barnabas, I'm guessing it's been closed more than it's been open. Yeah, we're just about, yeah, it's about half and half. So in, in everything that you've shared today, and you've shared so many rich insights and ideas, what are the most useful of those as you continue to run an organisation that in, in many ways is closed? And what will be most useful to you as it reopens? 
So I would say, firstly, although the club is closed, our work supporting uh, people who've experienced homelessness has absolutely continued and has actually stepped up. So I think the hospitality bit of our business mm. has been closed, but we've but actually our community hasn't been closed. Our so our support for our um, those people we serve haven't been closed. So I think actually, and that actually is, is part of the answer to the question that having that kind of ruthless focus on what we're there for which is to break the cycle of homelessness and in many ways we've been able to do that more and I've been really impressed by the team who you know we've delivered an employment preparation program excellently for the last few years but actually the team have had to really think how can we do this differently how have the needs of those we serve changed and so I think the first thing is just being really focused on what we're there for the second thing that's, that I found helpful is just keeping it in context of that of that much bigger context. You know, like we will do everything we can to make sure that this organisation, that our organisation can continue to deliver the impact um, that we think is necessary and, and uh, will help move forward conversations around how people who've experienced homelessness can progress into stable lives. But actually, there are some forces that we can't control. And actually, there are loads of hospitality businesses right now who will not survive this and um, that is deeply sad the world also moves on so I think having trying to keep that balance of we can do what we can but actually I've probably done this better in my professional life than my personal life through all of this uh, whereas in work I'm quite zen about we can only control what we can control in my personal life I'm like I just want to go to a disco <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the ruthless focus on what we're there for especially if we connect that back to what you said about our job is to create the best world we can for you, the leaders and citizens of 2041. Yeah. And actually whatever your cause or whatever your, whether, whether you're about driving the economy or driving social change or delivering good services or the environment, like actually that, how do we, how do we create a better world world for 20 years time is, is relevant and focuses on, on kind of systemic, challenges rather than just how do we feed people who are hungry today which of course is important but actually that isn't gonna gonna solve the problems that, that we face. Rosie this has flown before I let you go one of the things we love to share is um, a recommendation of something to read watch or listen to is there a something to read watch or listen to that has particularly inspired or informed your leadership that you would recommend on to the leaders listening to this absolutely I'm gonna have two if that's okay. okay. <laughs> uh, the first is uh, Akivo have a podcast called leadership worth sharing uh, which is conversations with a range of inspiring uh, charity leaders and it's really um yeah there's all sorts of content in there that I, I would definitely recommend and then in terms of to read um my favorite book although it's a little bit cheesy is the five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick Lencioni I think what that does for me is really pull out the importance of trust in teamwork and, and collaboration and that if you want to achieve results and impact the putting the foundations in place around trust and kind of successful conflict and accountability are, are absolutely critical and that's had a huge impact on me and my leadership style. I love what he says about artificial harmony versus productive conflict. It's yeah. such a useful reminder that because things sound good doesn't mean that they are. Take care yeah. of that. Rosie, thank you so much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, hearing from you and thank you so much again for your letter. Thank you.
You're listening to the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection on all things leadership. Time now for this month's Leadership Letters Lowdown. And as usual, in a short while, I'll be sharing a to read, to watch and to listen to recommendation for you as leaders. And in the meantime, let's begin this month by talking a little bit about self-compassion. I'm hearing and seeing a lot about this out there at the moment. There are references to being kind to yourselves on the news, social media. I'm hearing it come up a lot in conversations with clients and between my coaching colleagues. And I think it's one of those things that I fear potentially starts to become a piece of advice and that because we hear it a lot, be kind to yourself, it starts to lose its impact. We hear it in that kind of scrolling through the posts kind of way rather than pausing to truly apply it. And there's plenty of research and evidence out there that self-compassion is important. It has an impact on leadership. It helps people to be kinder and non-judgmental towards themselves, which actually creates an upward cycle of how that is then playing out in organisations. The role modelling, the impact of self-compassion is not only on the individual, it's on the organisation. And sometimes perhaps it can feel a bit like it's about being a bit fluffy, um, maybe being a bit too soft as a leader. And I guess what I want to say that I find myself saying to clients often too is that self-compassion isn't about that at all. It's not about um, letting go of authority. It's not about letting go in any way of your standards. But it is about saying, am I doing right by myself in order to do right by others? So the piece of advice I keep hearing at the moment is talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend. And again, this is great advice. If you were to truly pause for a moment and write the advice in any given moment that you would write to a friend, the chances are it's more kind, compassionate and useful than what you're saying to yourself if you know that what you're saying to yourself is a bit harsh. But again, I'm noticing people are finding it difficult to do that. So last week we spun this round a bit and the question I asked was, okay, how about you spend the day talking to other people like you talk to yourself? Now that then becomes a different question. If the challenge is to truly talk to other people in the way that I talk to myself, I would potentially find myself talking in some quite harsh ways to other people. That was a useful way in then to write, okay, I don't want to talk to people like that. I wouldn't talk to people like that. And that does really reveal that I could talk to myself in ways that would be more restorative, more useful, more inclined to connect me with my strengths. So if you're struggling with the talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend, start there. Start with what would happen if I spent the day talking to other people like I talk to myself and take it from there. So let's turn our attention then to some read, watch and listen to recommendations. Rosie has already shared hers. Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. That's that's a book I have turned to many times. Absolutely brilliant book. And her podcast that she shared, Akivo's Leadership Worth Sharing podcast, is one I'll definitely be listening into. Let's start with a to read from me as well then. Um, As last month's episode went out, many of us were tuning into the presidential inauguration in the United States and the poem written and read by Amanda Gorman at that event is one that has 
very much stayed with me. I found it so uplifting, incredibly emotive. It's rung in my ears ever since. She says, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. I've ordered my copy on her website. There's a lovely, well, it looks like it's going to be a lovely copy of, of the full poem with an introduction by Oprah Winfrey. Um, so you can get transcripts, but the link that you'll see in the podcast notes will be one to her own copy. I think it's coming out in March. Last month, we talked about some ways to lead through stalemate, some ways to lead through opposing views and ways to practice that so that you're ready for it. And I wanted to share the way that Amanda Gorman summarises that so, so beautifully. She says, and so we lift our gazes, not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. Beautiful advice for leaders there. So my to watch recommendation connects to that, putting the future first, putting the why what you are doing matters and why it matters to all our futures first as such an important part of how we have our meetings, our conversations, how we find our way forward as leaders and lead our teams to do that too. And actually there's something that Rosie said as well about how the work that is absolutely at the heart of their organisation at House of St Barnabas is what they have not only held on to, but driven more strongly than ever through a time when the face of their organisation, as it were, is closed to the public and to its members. So this reminded me of an oldie and a goodie as far as TED Talks go. This one's been around for a while, but it continues to get millions of views for good reason. It's Simon Sinek's talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. So what Simon Sinek does really brilliantly is remind us that it's not what we do, but why we do it that's important. It's not what we do, but why we do it that brings people with us. He has some examples about customers and consumers and what people buy. But of course, as, as leaders, that's essentially what people are doing. They're buying into you. So when you start with why, not what you're doing, but why you're doing it, there are many, many ways as leaders that that can be useful to you. Not least when you sit down and you start to think about how you're about to use your time. When time is short, and it often is, we can really make sure we're using the time in the way that's most useful to us by just taking a moment before we get into the what we're doing to pause and say, why? Why am I doing this? So you're connecting to the energy of that purpose. And also you're really checking in. Is what I'm about to do going to contribute to where I need to get to? And if not, Maybe I need to really think about how I'm about to use my time. So finally, a to listen to recommendation. This podcast is one that's been recently recommended to me, although looks absolutely brilliant and is nine seasons in. It's called How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. The particular episode I'm listening to at the moment is her interview with Matthew Syed. His books are ones I've turned to many times. I find them so interesting. Great summaries of so many principles that are useful to leaders. So Bounce is one of his books. Black Box Thinking is another. And his latest book, Rebel Ideas, is the one he's talking about on this particular episode of How to Fail. He talks about, of course, the importance of our focus on demographic diversity. And he also then says that it's really important also in a subject that's close to my heart and mind, 
that we focus on cognitive diversity. So we are really, truly embracing all the different ways that we are wired and how that comes out in the ways that we connect with each other, talk to each other. How does the way that I see the world show up in the way that I lead? And how does the way that other people see the world show up in the way that they respond to my leadership? And how can a better understanding of all of that more usefully shape the ways that we work together? In the podcast, he talks about shaping our collective intelligence and how increasing our awareness of cognitive diversity will lead to greater innovation and to more effectively solving problems as teams. So I have to be totally honest, I'm not all the way through this podcast yet, um, but already fascinated and looking forward to hearing the whole thing. So do have a listen and let me know what you think too. So there we are, another episode of Leadership Letters done. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do share this with anyone you think would find useful, a bit of a reflection on all things leadership alongside us in our Leadership Letters podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have your own to read, watch or listen to recommendations or indeed to let us know who you'd write a leadership letter to or who you'd love to hear from on Leadership Letters. You can get in touch to do that at thecausewaycoaching.com. This is the Leadership Letters podcast, a reflection on all things leadership. See you soon.